right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I just have one quick announcement. Well, two maybe. So this is our second to last Wellspring. Next time will be our last Wellspring. And for those of you who've taken Wellspring before, usually we have like a brunch and we're all in one big room and we all share everything we learned. We're not unfortunately going to do that this year. We're going to do it a little different. Um, we're going to keep with our no food year. Sorry, but you are free to bring your own food if you would like to each week. Um, so next week, uh, Omri, or not next week, it's in two weeks, Omri will be teaching and then we're going to go to our discussion groups like we do typically every week. Um, but I would encourage you over the next several weeks to just take some time to go through your notebook from this year to look at all the lessons that we've had, kind of review them a little bit for yourself and be prepared to share in your discussion group something you've learned this year, uh, something that impacted you, maybe it was new or um, something that you've seen yourself growing in or been challenged by, something like that to share um, with your group. So that's how we're gonna go ahead and do it uh, next week. And then hopefully next year, if you take Wellspring again, we'll go back to the normal way of doing things. So um, this morning, Cameron is teaching. Julie Porter is going to come and share our discipline. Let's pray. That's always a good place to start. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. And we just thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Um, I just pray that this time this morning would be um, an encouragement and blessing to the ladies here. And for those who couldn't be here this morning, I just pray that you would be with them as they go about their week um, and whatever you have for them to do that um, they would be careful to um, guard their hearts above all else Lord um, in Jesus name I pray amen um, last fall my husband and I planted several bushes in our planter around the edge of our backyard and over the past several months one by one the bushes have been dying literally disappearing, just an empty hole. While we initially blamed our poor dog, he gets blamed for everything, <laughs> we would later discover that we had a gopher. Have a gopher, he's still there. Um, we have not physically seen the pesky little rodent, but we have, however, seen the evidence. The hole leading to his tunnel, the mounds of dirt moved to cover his tracks, my husband even heard his little gnawing on one of the bushes or branches, this little. But our sinful hearts are not much different than this gopher in our planter. If left unchecked, sin, albeit often unseen by others, will wreak havoc as the evidence pops up in our lives. This is why discipline one focuses on our heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it or guarding it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. In our mixed condition, our hearts are prone to wander away from God's truth. We need to soak our hearts daily in God's word. Discipline too is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Back in January, Melissa taught a lesson on this verse. If you missed it, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. But if we want to be faithful, wise women who are ready to minister to those in our home, we need to spend time knowing God's word and worshiping the God of the word. We can't bring God's word to those in our home if we don't know it. We will quickly grow weary in serving others if we haven't first spent time worshiping God. He is the source of our strength. Discipline three is ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, 
He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Skipping down to verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I'm very grateful that we have elders and pastors that see the value and need to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that we live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If we want to be faithful women of God who build up our homes and do not wander from his commandments, we need to guard it by guarding it according to his word. We need to treasure his word in our hearts. I wanted to close with a prayer from um, Pierce in Heaven. It's a lot like the Valley of Vision. I think it's out on the bookshelf out there. But um, it's, this one is called the, the Garner of My Soul. Oh, precious Jesus, may I no longer, may I be no longer unfruitful in your garden. Lord, do as you have said, dig around me pour, and pour on me all the sweet influences of your Holy Spirit, which, like the rain, the sun, and the dew of heaven, may cause me to bring forth fruit to God. And Lord, if you will listen to an unworthy creature like me plead for others, let the coming year bring the same blessings to all your redeemed even to my unawakened relatives and to thousands who are still in darkness. I pray that this may be to them the acceptable year of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Today, we are going to be studying the hidden person of the heart. This is a new lesson for Wellspring. So before we start, let me just open with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, you are good and you are holy, you are sovereign, you are worthy of all of our praise in every area of our life. Lord, I pray that today as we open your word, that it would be powerful to impact our hearts, that it would pierce, um, that it would pierce our hearts and pierce through every area in our life, bring conviction, bring sanctification and growth, that you might get more glory in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In 2019, the global beauty industry was a $500 billion market and still growing. Accounting for nearly 40% of that $500 billion, the biggest cosmetic product users, continent-wise, were Oceana and Asia, followed by the United States at 25% of that market. There's nothing new under the sun. Women beautifying themselves outwardly has been going on since ancient Egypt when women would line their eyes with coal, both for cosmetic purposes and also to keep away the flies. I think would work well in a commercial now. <laughs> By this eyeliner, keeps away the flies. I see some lions on National Geographic that could really use some coal. The Aztecs would use dried cochineal beetles, crushed to dye their lips red. During the Elizabethan era in England, coal tar was used as mascara, eyebrow pencil, and eyeliner. I said coal tar. It was flammable, it smelled terrible, and it caused blindness. The world has always had an idea of what a beautiful woman looks like. But as believers, we want to know what does a godly woman look like, biblically. How is she to think about adorning herself, about things like beauty and modesty? What ought to be the godly woman's priorities when it comes to adorning herself? That's the question. It'll probably not surprise any of you in this room to hear that when we ask that question, what does a godly woman look like biblically? The answer has very little to do with her outward appearance and much to do with her heart. You'll remember in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God tells Samuel to anoint David, king of Israel, he says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And we know this in Wellspring, we've been talking about it all year long. We're almost done talking about it for this year again. For better or worse, it is from our hearts that everything else in our life flows, our thoughts, our words, our actions. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Over and over in scripture, we see that what God prioritizes, what he cares most about when it comes to his people are their hearts. And we saw this in the lesson that we had a few weeks ago on surveying the women in the Bible. We only know, out of all six of those women, we only know what one of them looked like outwardly because that is not God's priority when it comes to women. God's priority for women, God's priority for everyone has always been and will always be our hearts. So the outward things, the things that can be seen, those are just the fruit of inward realities. Within the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we are going to see the word adorn or adorning. That word in the Greek is cosmos. That's where we get our English word for cosmetics, right? Cosmos. And what cosmos means, it means to order, to arrange, to decorate, to beautify. The idea of this passage that we're going to look at is how is a woman um, best put in order in order to please God, both inwardly and outwardly. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll get to look at the hidden person of the heart. Peter is the author of this book. It was written near the end of his life between AD 62, AD 65. Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire during this time, and I don't know if you know anything about Nero, but he was not a good guy. He was fanatical about building and, and rebuilding, and in his maniacal desire to rebuild, he burned the city of Rome to the ground. And when he needed someone to blame for that burning, he blamed the Christians. And as a result of that, there arose a widespread and severe persecution of Christians, causing many of them to scatter and go into exile. Hence why Peter addresses this book to the elect exiles of the dispersion. This background is significant because the audience to whom Peter was writing were believers who, already, who either already had suffered or were about to suffer. And he exhorts them in this book to press on, not just in their verbal testimony for Christ, but to press on in their holiness. He directs them back again and again to their eternal hope in heaven that they have through Christ. And he reminds them that it is because they have that hope that they're able to withstand suffering and to continue to live godly, obedient lives. So in the middle of this letter, we find 1 Peter chapter 3. We find this passage. Peter's been giving broad commands to all believers throughout this epistle, and now he takes a moment to address specific categories of people who might need a little more help in obeying these commands. He exhorts servants right before this passage to be subject to their masters, both the just and the unjust. And then in our passage that we come to, he addresses wives, specifically believing wives who were married to unbelieving husbands. But before you stop listening, those of you in this room who are not married yet, if you're single, if you're widowed, I would implore you to keep listening because Peter is about to paint for us a portrait of what a godly woman's life looks like, what submission should look like in her life, what she should prioritize when it comes to things like beauty and modesty. And I would suggest that those categories of thinking are not exclusive to women who are married, but to every woman in this room, myself included. We all need to, have, to hear God's thoughts in these categories of things, what his priorities are. I am not married, and this passage has benefited me tremendously. This passage, in a nutshell, tells us what godly, woman should, what godly women should prioritize when it comes to adorning themselves in the midst of an unbelieving culture. So read with me chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 6. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The first point 
that we'll be going over this morning is going to be our longest point. Just hang in there for a little while. And the first point on your outline is that the godly woman is to adorn herself with submission. The godly woman is to adorn herself with submission. Peter's in the middle of a letter instructing believers to hold fast to their godly conduct in the midst of suffering. And what does he think of first when it comes to wives? Submission to their husbands. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Um, I would ask you to raise your hands if either now or sometime in the past you have ever felt, you don't have to actually do this if this makes you uncomfortable, if you've ever felt, I'll just, I'll just do it, um, if you've ever felt personally offended by this idea of wives being subject to their husbands in marriage, right? So, I mean, I'm going to raise my hand. Um, it offends me, right? There's, there's a part of me that gets offended or has been offended by that in the past. And why is that, right? Because, because maybe it makes us feel inferior in some way. Uh, like in, there's some inequality going on between us and, and our husbands. But see, this is so interesting because marriage is not the only place in Scripture that tells us to submit, right? Within the same book of 1 Peter, we find commands addressed to all believers to submit to governmental authority, right? 1 Peter 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He says to be subject to the emperor. And Peter's writing in a day where the emperor was Nero. Was this because, were Christians told to submit to Nero because they were inferior to Nero? Were they told to submit because they were intellectually less than Nero or unequal to him as a human being? Well, no, of course not. They were submitting to the order that God had designed in government. Do you feel equally as offended in your person about being told to submit to your government? When a man submits to the president of the United States, does that make him inferior to him or any less of a human being? Of course not, because it's about order. We're not anarchists. The verb here to be subject is hupotasso. It comes from two Greek words, one of which, which means under, to be under, and the other one, which means to designate or appoint, right? So it is arranging in a deliberate fixed order. One commentator says of this word that it is submission that involves recognition of an ordered structure. Are you offended by the idea that children have to submit to their parents? Does that make children inferior, right? Unequal as people, as it does in Ephesians 6.1. Are you offended in the same way when you're told to submit to your boss at work? Well, no, of course not because that's not about inequality or inferiority. That is about order. Marriage is no different. God's design for marriage is not anarchy. It is not chaos or confusion. It is about order, and to that end, he created the man to be the head of that relationship and the woman to be his helper, to be, to, to be subject to him, to submit to him, as we talked about a few weeks ago when we discussed Eve. And for an example of someone who is submissive while also being perfectly equal, we have to look no further than Jesus, right? Than the Trinity. Though Jesus was in every way equal to his Father, to God, his Father, Jesus submitted himself under his authority. In John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And having submitted himself to the Father, Jesus submitted himself to every other earthly human institution. He submitted himself to his parents. We see that in Luke 2.51 um, in Jerusalem, where it says, And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He submitted himself to the unjust Roman government by paying taxes to that institution, as we see in Matthew 22.21, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And he submitted to and suffered under that same unjust government when he was crucified. We see this in 1 Peter 2.22, where it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Submitting to earthly authority did not make Jesus inferior to those people. Quite the opposite. It pleased his Father that Jesus should obey the law perfectly, and submitting to earthly authority was a part of that. He wanted to please his Father. A wife being subject to her husband does not imply inferiority or inequality to him any more than her being subject to her boss or her government. Submission in marriage is not about that. It is about order. In fact, the, the verse 
that follows our passage in, in 1 Peter 3, 7, instructs husbands to honor their, their wives since they are joint heirs, co-heirs of the grace of life with them. There is equality in marriage. But God's design is that there are also roles, that the man is the head and the woman is to submit to that headship. This is actually a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. But submission is hard. In fact, prior to conversion, true submission is impossible because submission to our husbands, true biblical submission to our husbands, can only flow from true genuine submission to God. And prior to being saved, our hearts cannot submit to God. That's what Romans 8, 7 says. It says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But something miraculous happens when God saves someone. Hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. They can not only submit to God, but they love to submit to God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 tells us that his commandments are not burdensome. Peter is writing to believers who have submitted their lives to God first and most. And submitting to God, they submit to every other God-appointed authority in their life. Not because it's righteous or just or they deserve it, but because that is God's good design and they want to please their Father. By submitting to that authority, they're submitting to Him. And when we talk about biblical submission, we're not talking about gritted teeth, reluctant, outward submission. We are talking about willing, loving, genuine, joyful submission that comes from hearts that have been radically changed by the gospel. And unlike Nero, whom Christians had neither elected into office um, nor desired to have rule over them, submission within marriage is voluntary because we get to choose who it is that we submit to. We get to choose who we marry. But now we have to ask, is, is this submission to your husband, or if you're not married, to your parents, or to your teachers, to your boss, to your government, is, is, is submission dependent upon their obedience to God's word? Is it dependent upon their morally righteous behavior and rules? Is your obedience dependent upon theirs? No. We, in fact, we find the opposite. Right here in our passage, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That phrase, do not obey the word, is used throughout this letter to describe unbelievers. 1 Peter 2.8 talks about those who have rejected Jesus as the cornerstone, saying they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And this word in the Greek for do not obey, it's apetheo. It has the idea, there's, there's an idea of obstinance built into this word. There's a connotation of, of refusal to be persuaded, to disbelieve willfully or perversely. They do not obey. Peter puts no qualification on submitting to the government. Like we said, Nero was emperor. He adds no caveats when he is instructing servants to be subject to their masters, saying in 2.18 that they are to be subject with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And he adds no qualification here in wives submitting to their husbands, believing or unbelieving. This command would have been especially hard back in Peter's day for wives to obey, since back then women actually were seen as inferior, largely, culturally. A wife back then would have been expected, among other things, to adopt her husband's religion without question. So for a woman to be a Christian when her husband was not would have already been socially radical. And to continue to submit herself to an unbelieving man during that time would have been extremely challenging when she was viewed as little more than property. And submission is still hard today, but there are no qualifications on our submission to any of the God-appointed authority in our life. Save one thing, and that would be if our husbands, our government, would ask us to engage in conduct which would not honor God, right? If we are asked to worship another God, stop worshiping our God, um, we are called to disobey. We are called to not submit to that because we submit first and most to God and then to our husbands and the authority in our lives out of the overflow of our submission to God. But besides that, there is no qualification on our submission to any of the God-appointed authority in our life, and we, and we have to ask why. Why obey ungodly government? Why submit to unjust husbands or to an unbelieving man? Listen to what Peter says a few verses earlier in 2.12. He says, 
keep the, addressing all believers, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And why is that? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is talking, the day of visitation is talking about salvation, either when the Holy Spirit visits someone to renew their heart, or on the last day of judgment when they, when they glorify God in salvation. This is talking about salvation. What this verse is saying is that the godly conduct of believers in the face of slander, in the face of mistreatment, leads those same unbelievers to salvation. And this echoes Matthew 5.16 where Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what does not lead unbelievers to salvation? Ungodly rebellious, defiant, immoral conduct, because that looks just like them. But believer, your godly, submissive, humble, righteous conduct is evangelism. And this is exactly the reason that we find here in our text. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That they might be won this is just one word in the Greek. It's the same word used in the Matthew 18 passage on church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It means to win over, to gain, to avoid loss. Ladies, if your husband is an unbeliever, it is not just your words. It, your godly conduct is evangelism. By continuing to embrace your biblical design of submission, even in the face of slander or mistreatment or neglect, this is a testimony that there is something greater in your life that you are submitted to than him. One commentator says, wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, she submits because of her relationship with and her trust in God. <laughs> Jesus is our preeminent example of this kind of submission. After he exhorts servants to be subject to their masters, both just and unjust, Peter writes in 2.21, as we said earlier, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And 1 Peter 3.18 similarly says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How did God choose to save sinners? What was his evangelism to us? It came through a sinless, suffering, submissive Savior. That was the means by which God brought us to himself. That was his evangelism to lost and dying sinners, and that is still the means that he uses today. God is pleased to use suffering, submissive servants to demonstrate his kindness to a world that has no category for that in order to bring them to himself. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Are you marked by this kind of submission? Would your husband or your parents, your pastors, describe you as one who submits to the authority in your life because you are first and most submitted to God? Do you grumble against that authority, slander that authority, or try to go around that authority? Note the manner here in which this woman strives to win her husband. It says, for wives to be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Isn't that interesting? This does not mean um, that we don't open our mouths. This does not mean that we become mute. A wife back then would have had to open her mouth to tell her husband that she was a Christian, that this is why she was behaving as she was. <clears throat> but there is a temptation to think that if we just keep talking to our unbelieving husbands, if we just say it this way to our unbelieving family members and friends, um, then they'll believe. You know, we, we stay up at night in our beds just replaying conversations, conversations and just thinking, ah, if I had only said it this way, they would have been saved. And somewhere along the way, that talking it becomes nagging, becomes badgering, taping verses to his coffee mug or beer bottle or leaving tracks on the seat of his car. The point here is that our submission to authority, our godly conduct has an impact on those watching our lives that actually speaks louder than our words. 
In his introduction to this epistle, John MacArthur says, Peter wished to impress on his readers that by living an obedient, victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize his hostile world. And the opposite of that is also true, right? If our, if our actions do not align with the words our mouth professes, we can bring shame or dishonor or disgrace on the gospel. MacArthur continues about Satan's effort to discredit the church. He says, one way these spirits work is by finding Christians whose lives are not consistent with the word of God and then parading them before unbelievers to show what a sham the church is. Christians, however, must stand against the enemy and silence the critics by the power of holy lives. Women, our submission and our godly conduct is evangelism. What kind of godly conduct wins unbelieving husbands or unbelievers, period, for Christ? The second point on your outline is that the godly woman is to adorn herself with respectful and pure conduct. The word respectful here is the Greek word for fear. This is not fear directed towards husbands, but towards God. It is living your life in the fear of God and submitting your life to his commandments. John Anderson is in the middle of an equipping hour right now in the fear of the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, the fear of the Lord drives the sinner to cling to God, tremble at his commands, and obey them. It is consumed with pleasing him and terrified of offending him. When your unbelieving husband or your unbelieving family members, friends, co-workers, when they, when they see you fearing the Lord in your daily life, this impacts them for Christ. The word pure is sometimes translated holy. It means to be without defilement or stain. And that, that's fleeing the passions and the lusts of our flesh and, and of this world. We used to be enslaved to those things, but, but now we're different. We have new hearts that pursue holiness, that we pursue obeying and submitting to God's commands. In 1 Peter 1.14, Peter writes, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And there we see both holiness and fear side by side. The believer's life is, is marked by holiness and fear of the Lord. The godly woman adorns herself with respectful and pure conduct. And this is evangelism. Are you known? by the unbelievers in your life, by, by the believers in your life? Are you known as someone who is living your life in the fear of God and submitting to his commandments? Are you known by your spouse or your parents, by your friends, as one who is pursuing holiness? That is godly conduct. That is evangelism in a watching world. Peter now moves into the realm of adorning ourselves. What should be the godly woman's priorities when it comes to how she thinks about things like beauty? and modesty. And this is not unconnected from what he was just saying. Submission is an adornment for the godly woman. But he becomes a little bit more specific here, and he begins with what godly women are not to prioritize when it comes to how they adorn themselves externally. Read with me 1 Peter 3.3. 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. In Peter's day, the braiding of hair um, was not like it is today. It was a much more elaborate process. As ancient Roman portraits depict, um, braiding your hair in this way would require hours and hours and multiple helpers. One ancient writer describes it this way, so important is the business of beautification, so numerous are the tears and stories piled one upon another on her head. Braiding one's hair in this way was noticeable, to say the least. This hairstyle was specifically designed to attract attention, and sometimes um, gold or pearls would actually be woven into these elaborate braids on her head, which would attract even more attention. So the next blank on your outline is that the godly woman does not prioritize noise, and I put it in quotes, noise, when it comes to adorning herself. The godly woman does not prioritize noise when it comes to adorning herself. What do I mean by noise? What I mean is adorning yourself in such a way, be it your hair, your face, your clothes, that creates noise that is designed to attract attention to yourself, not literal noise, but dressing in such a way that it attracts attention to yourself. It, we could say that it was loud or, or flashy might be another word for it. 
Of course, women drawing attention to themselves through their dress or their hair is nothing new. It was common in Peter's day, hence this epistle, the command here. It was common all the way back in Isaiah's day. And part of where I got noise from here is it comes from a passage in Isaiah. Um, in the midst of, if you want to turn back there really fast, it's Isaiah chapter 3. It's in the midst of uh, God proclaiming his judgment on Judah and Jerusalem through Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, he indicts the women of Judah. And this is what he says. And I'm going to skip part of this in the middle a little bit. It says, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the the sashes, skipping, the signet rings and nose rings. And down it says, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness and instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. You can flip back. Do you hear the noise of how these women adorn themselves? Mincing and tinkling. There was literal noise. And listen, now there's nothing wrong with jingly, jingly jewelry. Right? Um, there's, There's actually nothing wrong with any of these items of adornment themselves. The problem is exactly where the Lord begins in his indictment. The first thing that he says in this passage is because the daughters of Zion are haughty. Right? The problem is the motive behind why they are adorning themselves this way. It is their heart. They want to be seen. They want to be admired. This is pride. This is vanity on display. Is it any different in our culture today? Dressing in such a way or adorning ourselves to make a little bit of noise and draw attention to ourselves. I mean, the the list is endless with the way that we can do this, is it not? We can spend hours having our hair done or our nails done or our eyebrows or eyelashes extended or removed. Products and procedures for every beauty, woe and worry abound. Skincare, makeup, laser hair removal, injections. We live in the day where if there is something you cannot adorn enough, you can have it surgically altered, right? South Korea has the highest rate of plastic surgery in the world. With one out of every three women ages 19 through 23 having had it done. The most popular cosmetic surgery is double eyelid surgery. It's called blepharoplasty, wherein a more prominent eyelid is created in the Asian eye, creating bigger, more Western-looking eyes. We can make noise in all sorts of ways. We can do that just through our clothes, through designer labels or expensive sneakers or designer handbags. And before I condemn every single person in this room, right, myself included, it's a little bit difficult when you're the one speaking on this and then you're getting dressed in the morning. (laughs) Whatever, you know what, it comes down to your hearts. Okay, ladies? Before I condemn everyone in this room, I'm going to say this again, none of these things are bad in and of themselves getting your hair done, getting your nails done, whatever. Makeup is not bad. In fact, there is a side to the spectrum where we do not care enough about our appearance, as we're going to see in just a minute. But by and large, what we as women living in this culture struggle with more is being too preoccupied with how we look, spending too much time, too much money, too much thought on it. Culturally, this noise for us might look different from Peter's day to Isaiah's day and to our day, but the heart hasn't changed. It's still the same. It's still vanity. It's still pride. The motive is still to draw attention to ourselves so that we can be seen and admired. Listen, godly women are not interested in drawing the eyes of others to themselves. We are not interested in a lost and dying world, seeing us, admiring us, because we know that what a lost and dying world desperately needs to see is God. It's to see God, to admire him. They do not need to hear more of our noise. They need to hear more of his. What if the noise and how we dress or adorn ourselves is so loud that people can't actually hear the words that we're saying? Are there areas in your life 
or an excessive amount of time or money is being spent on adorning yourself outwardly. When you are getting dressed in the morning, is, is your chief goal for others to see you, to make much of you? Or is it to see God, to make much of him? Because the heart-level question that we all need to be asking ourselves is, am I dressing for God's glory or for my own? The godly woman does not prioritize noise when it comes to adorning herself. Well, so then how is the godly woman to think about these things? How is she to think about her external adornment? What is she to prioritize? I want you to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for a minute. We're going to look at a very similar passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's giving instructions for how the church is to be ordered. He's giving instructions to specific groups of people, and, and he instructs the women in verse 9, and he says, I desire likewise that also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And here are the next few blanks on your outline. The godly woman prioritizes respectable apparel. Apparel only has one L, for those of you who are wondering. <laughs> Care about things like that. Spelled it wrong forever. Two Ps, one L, apparel. She prioritizes modesty and self-control in her outward adorning. This text in 1 Timothy is, is so helpful because the, the 1 Peter 3 passage gives us the prohibition, the negative, right? Um, to not let our preoccupation or our priority be on our external appearance. But here in 1 Timothy, we see the positive side of that command, how we are to think about our external adorning. And the first priority here that the godly woman should have when it comes to adorning herself externally is to have respectable apparel. The word for respectable here, it means orderly, virtuous, well-arranged. And as I mentioned earlier, the, earlier, there's a side to the spectrum where we do not care enough about our appearance. Godly women are to be respectable. They are not to be slovenly or carelessly dressed. In this culture, being respectable means that we shower, we brush our hair, we, we wear well-ordered clothes. The godly woman also prioritizes modesty. The word in the Greek here is so interesting because it carries a sense of shame, as in preventing shame. Strong's Concordance says about this word, it is often said that eidos precedes and prevents the shameful act. The idea of this word is that it always restrains a good man from an unworthy act. That's what modesty does. Have you ever considered how you dress to be the possibility for you to commit an unworthy act? That modesty is actually a tool that prevents you from shame, bringing shame. We live in a provocative world. Women who are dressed immodestly are paraded before us on television, social media, commercials, and we are told that they are beautiful. But God's word tells us that dressing this way is not their glory, it is their shame. They are clamoring for the attention of every eye with the motive behind it, often being to make men stumble in lust or to make other women envious, both of which are sin. Modesty is a mark of a godly woman because it is the opposite of calling attention to herself to make others stumble. It restrains us from unworthy acts. This is a challenging virtue to hold on to in this culture, right? With each new style season, I'm always hopeful that the theme is going to be modesty, you know? <laughs> modesty, but to no avail. Even if the pants are longer, the shorts are shorter, it's like never works. Because we live in a fallen world that does not want to submit to God and it cannot. One commentator says of, of, of women dressing this way, this is the vanity of personal display in order to attract general attention, in particular to fill other women with envy to outshine rivals. Such a woman wants to make a stunning impression. Her mind is entirely on herself. She is unfit for worship. Dressing this way, respectably and modestly, it's a challenge in a godless culture, and, and this calls for self-control. The next blank on your outline there in that line. The word for self-control is translated discreetly in the NASB. It carries with it the idea of sobriety or, or self-restraint 
We restrain ourselves from dressing in a way that might bring shame on ourselves or cause someone else to stumble. And instead, we focus how we dress on how we can best point others away from ourselves and to God. Do you see how you dress in the morning for church or for anywhere else as a way to worship God, to draw the eyes of everyone around you to him rather than to yourself? The godly woman prioritizes respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control when she adorns herself externally. These are to be our priorities when it comes to thinking about adorning ourselves that way. But now let's flip back to our 1 Peter 3 passage. And we're going to see something far more important than how we adorn ourselves externally. Read with me the first part of verse 4 in chapter 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, starting in verse 3, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Far more important than how we adorn ourselves outwardly, where other people can see, is how we adorn ourselves inwardly, where only God sees. God sees our heart. He cares about our heart because as we well know here in Wellspring, it is the wellspring of life. It is from the well of our hearts that everything else in our life flows, including how we dress and behave and speak. The heart here, it's, it's the seat of all of our thoughts and affections, our emotions, our beliefs. This is the inner man, who we really are on the inside. I took us to 1 Timothy because I believe that passage filled in a helpful gap about how we're to think rightly about our outward appearance, but, but don't miss the main point of this passage in 1 Peter 3 because there's no positive command here in 1 Peter 3. The main emphasis here is that the focus of the godly woman, the overwhelming focus of the godly woman is not to be on her external adorning, but on her inward adorning. Her focus must be on her heart. Because that is what God sees when he looks at us, not what color our hair is or how tan we are, what our physique looks like. As believers, we have a different preoccupation in the world. We have a different priority. And it is not on adorning our faces or our bodies, but it's on our hearts. What is the godly woman to adorn her heart with? Let's finish the rest of the verse. It says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The next point on your outline was that the godly woman prioritizes adorning the hidden person of the heart, was the last one. And the next one is that the godly woman prioritizes adorning her heart with a gentle and quiet spirit. With a gentle and quiet spirit. Why are we, as believers, not to be preoccupied with external things? Why are those not to be our priority when it comes to adorning ourselves? Because they are perishing. Do you see that here? We're to let our adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Ladies, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but our outer self is wasting away, or at least mine is. I'm getting older, I can't sleep in the same position all night anymore. Our faces wrinkle, our clothes wear out, your favorite sh pair of shoes breaks, but the fading nature of those outward things, their perishable quality, is helpful because it stands in stark contrast to what does not fade, to what does not wrinkle or wear out or break or tarnish, to what is imperishable. There's a running theme in the book of First Peter. There's, there's a contrast all throughout the book between the, the perishable and the imperishable. Do you know what Peter says in this book is imperishable? In 1 Peter 1.4, he tells us that we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In 1.18, he reminds us that we were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ, which is imperishable. In 1.23, he says that we've been born again not with perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's imperishable. And do you know what else Peter calls imperishable in this book? This, the beauty, the quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's imperishable. This is what godly women are to adorn themselves with first and most. This is what ought to be their preoccupation and their priority. Adorning the hidden person of their hearts with a gentle and quiet spirit. That's imperishable. That word imperishable, it means incorruptible, immortal impervious to the corruption to corruption and death 
This is what God is concerned with because he knows that when all else perishes, this will remain. And Paul reminds us of the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4.16, that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That inner man is going to last forever, one way or the other. Let's look at these two words for a moment, gentle and quiet spirit. The ESV translates it as gentle, but this word does not necessarily mean gentle as in touch. It actually can be translated humble, considerate, meek, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. That's what it means to be gentle. It's to be meek. This is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 5, 5, when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This meekness flows from a right view of ourselves first before God and spills over into how we see ourselves before others. The meek person knows that her actions have only ever earned for her the eternal wrath of God in hell. But God, in his mercy, sent his son to be judged in her place. And she has now been forgiven. She's like the servant in Matthew 18 who owed 200,000 years worth of debt. If you've ever done the math, it's 200,000 years worth of debt. And then one day had the entire balance forgiven by her master. She never forgets that mercy. So when her fellow servants owe her a debt, when they sin against her, she is quick to forgive because she knows it's nothing like what she owed her master and she's been forgiven. But being meek like this, being lowly, it's not natural, is it? I mean, I, I think that we'd all be comfortable standing up in this room and, and saying that we're all sinners. But have you ever been in small group confessing sin, right? And, and really doing a good job of being meek. And then you, you go home and, and you have your husband or your parent point out sin in your life and you are just indignant. What? Like, it's, it's okay if I say I'm a sinner, but how dare you? <laughs> that reaction is the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of having a gentle spirit. It is pride. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says on his chapter on this and um, is actually on the Beatitudes, that Matthew 5 verse on meekness. He says, the meek man, this is a longer quote, the meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. But when a man becomes meek, he has finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He never thinks how wonderful I really am. If only other people gave me a chance. Self-pity, what hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek has finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Another commentator says, a gentle and quiet spirit is one which puts up with the demands of others without causing any itself. It's hard to be meek. And this world does not look upon meekness favorably. This kind of person sounds weak sometimes, the kind of person who's submissive and gentle and quiet and meek. Does that person sound weak to you? Moses, who led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he part of the Red Sea, he was constantly sinned against and slandered. He was the meekest man on earth. That's what Numbers 12.3 says. David was king of Israel, defeated a giant in battle when he was young. He was maligned and hunted by wicked men, and yet he was meek. So in Psalm 40, he writes, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. That's what it is to be meek. The word for quiet here means tranquil, quiet, well-ordered. There is a quietness in our spirit when we are fully trusting the Lord. This quietness of spirit, it's not dependent upon our circumstances. Trusting God is not an arms flailing, fist shaking, head banging type of a hair, head hanging. We can submit to unjust authority and hold fast our godly conduct because we trust God. We don't need to be vindicated. 
here on earth because we know that the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and we leave it to him. Oftentimes, um, the times where we're trusting God the most is when we're not talking, when we're not complaining or worrying or venting or wondering or making demands, but when we're just quiet. We don't overcome, we're not overcome by evil, right? We overcome evil with good. We trust, we're meek, we're quiet. Jesus was both of these things in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He declared himself to be meek. He uses this same word. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, there's that word, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he was God, and Jesus was quiet. Isaiah 53 talks about the pinnacle of Jesus' suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth in the face of persecution and suffering and, and malignment. He was quiet. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus had the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, and we are called to follow in his steps. This is what godly women adorn themselves with, not with better makeup or nicer clothes or newer hairstyle, first and most, but with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And it says, it's so sweet, it says, which in God's sight is very precious. This word precious is costly. It's the same word used to describe the alabaster flask of pure nard that was used to anoint Jesus. It's costly. It's precious to God, our imperishable, gentle, and quiet spirits when we do this, when we just want to please our Father. The world scoffs at such things, calls them worthless. The value of being a humble, meek, modest, submissive woman has never, I think, been lower. But, oh, in God's sight, these things are precious. Would those around you say that you are marked by meekness? Would your spouse or your children or your family or friends, your co-workers, say that you are marked by having a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit? Or are you more preoccupied with the outer adorning than your inner? Would they say that instead? Do your priorities and these things align with God's priorities? Quickly, let's see how Peter brings this passage to a close. Our last two points. After painting this portrait of a woman who is beautiful in God's eyes, not because of her outward adorning, but because of the adorning of her heart, he says this in 1 Peter 3, 5. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Why would a woman adorn herself with things like submission and modesty? The godly woman adorns herself this way. This is the next blank on your outline. Because of her hope in God. Because of her hope in God. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a progression throughout this passage. See, Peter begins with the external command, with what can be seen. But he doesn't stop there. He moves inward, right? He goes internally. From what can be seen to what is hidden. And here we see the source from which all the other water um, and the godly woman's life flows, and it is her hope in God. The word hope here, it's not like um, the way that we use the word hope today, like I hope I win the lottery with uncertainty built into it, but it means to expect, to trust. It's more of a confident expectation that something is going to happen. It's more like I hope the sun will rise tomorrow. There is a confidence underlying hope here. Every woman on this earth hopes or has her confidence in something It can be in her her looks, her social media rankings, her job, her husband, her children, her health, the list goes on. But the godly woman's hope is not in any of these things. It is not in anything on this earth. It is, it is not in whether or not her husband will repent or finally listen to her. It is not in whether her children will be saved. Her hope is not in whether or not she will ever find a husband if she's single, or whether or not she will ever have children. It is somewhere else entirely. It is somewhere where the uncertainties and the failures of this life cannot touch. Flip over to two chapters earlier, 1 Peter 1. And I want you to read with me how Peter opens this letter to these suffering, scattered Christians. In their exile, the, basically the first thing that he says is about their hope. Starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The holy woman's hope is not set on the tarnishing trinkets of this world, but on the imperishable treasure of eternity. Her hope is set on God. She has Christ. She loves him, though she hasn't seen him. And she longs to see him, and she knows she will see him. And though she lose all else, if she has him, she knows she still has everything. This hope is living. There is an inheritance that has been purchased for her. It can't be lost through trials or disappointments. It can't be lost by her sin or by anyone else's sin. It can't be lost by sickness, and it can't even be lost by death. This is a promise that runs deeper than anything on this earth, than any of life's disappointments. I've seen the power of this promise in 1 Peter 1. A few years ago, when my husband was very sick, and he was dying from cancer, he was put on hospice in our home, and he was conscious less and less in those last days. And as his wife, I wasn't sure how he was doing. I mean, I wasn't sure if he was sad or angry or, or scared. Uh, but I didn't want to wake him up because he was in so much pain. So you don't want to wake them up so that they'll be in more pain. But you don't know. You know, you don't know if they're doing okay inside. And um, a friend came to see him, actually caught a red eye home from vacation so that he could say goodbye to him. And he had with him what would prove to be um, my husband's last conversation on this earth. I wasn't even sure he was going to wake up when I tried to wake him up. But, um, but I said, Matt, Matt, Kyle's here. And... And he turned, he suddenly got all this energy, and he turned over, and he looked straight at Kyle, and he goes, this is his last conversation on this earth. And he goes, but Kyle, we can still rejoice. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's being kept in heaven for us. And then he charged Kyle to preach the gospel since he wasn't going to be here anymore to do it. His body was perishing but that man's hope was set on God, and he knew that that hope would never perish. The godly woman hopes in God alone. That's why she can submit to her husband, though he be unkind. It's why she is free to not pursue the world's standard of beauty and instead follow God's. So confident is she that what she now holds is imperishable and sure and better she is able to joyfully loosen her hold on all that is on this earth and hope only in him she sets her hope on god and lastly peter gives us one helpful example of what hoping in god looks like read with me first peter 3 6 he says for this is how the holy woman who hoped in god used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The last point on your outline is that Sarah was a godly woman who prioritized holiness and submission. She's called a, a holy woman who hoped in God. And she prioritized, she prioritized holiness, which in a word would very neatly sum up all of the specific things we've been talking about this morning. This holiness, this this hope in God was displayed most clearly by her submission to Abraham, her husband. It says she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And the only reference to this in the Bible is in Genesis 18, 12. She actually says it almost in passing. Now that my Lord is old, shall I now have this pleasure when she's told she's going to have Isaac? So she says it almost in passing, but, but, but that statement, calling Abraham Lord, um, a term of deference, was indicative that her whole life was marked by this kind of submission and deference to her husband. 
says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, right, that will be her children, Sarah was marked by doing good and not fearing what is frightening. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, there were many things of which Sarah could have been afraid, but we read none of that. She was a holy woman who hoped in God. And we are her children if we follow her example. The verb for used to adorn themselves here in verse 5, it's in the imperfect sense. Um, it suggests ongoing action. Holy women do not just adorn themselves one morning with a gentle and quiet spirit and a good, right? They do it over and over and over again. They go to God's word in the morning, every morning, to renew their minds there. One commentator says, the hidden man of the heart made them spiritually beautiful, and for this beauty they constantly strove. That is our life, that is our pursuit as godly women. Let's work backward through this passage for a moment. From inside to outside, with, with a heart that hopes in God alone, the holy woman is enabled to adorn her heart first with a gentle and quiet spirit, which then expresses itself outwardly through submission to her husband, modest clothing, pure and respectable conduct, and this evangelizes the lost world around her. Do you see all three disciplines at work in this passage? Our heart, it always comes back to our heart, which then very quickly, sometimes more quickly than we wish it would, spreads to our home, and then it flows outward from there. Sarah was a holy woman who hoped in God, and her heart spilled over into her household through her submission to her husband, but then it did also spill over into her ministry, right, into the outward world. This is why we're reading about her today. We're spurred on by her godly conduct. When we wake up in the morning, do we move first to adorn the part of us that no one sees, the hidden person of our heart? Do we run to God's word before our mascara to enrobe ourselves once again in his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his goodness, his promises? Do we remind ourselves that we have a hope in heaven that will never perish? And does this help us to hold loosely everything else that does? Including our outward appearance. And then we go and put on our mascara to be respectable. Is our priority adorning our hearts with a meek and quiet spirit that flows out of us into our homes, into our relationship with our husbands, our children, and then outward into a watching world? Are we striving after God's good plan for order in marriage through submission? Are we marked by pure and respectable conduct and dress? I see so much of God's kindness in this passage to help us see what a godly woman looks like in a worldly culture. Someone who seeks not the approval of man, right, but of God. May we adorn ourselves with the things that are precious in his sight, even if they are worthless in the world. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you have not saved us and then left us here to fend for ourselves and try to have discernment in these things. Our hearts are deceitful, Lord. We have a problem that begins in our heart. And yet, Lord, you have, you have renewed our hearts. You have made them spiritually alive you've given us the ability to obey, to submit to what your word says. And I just thank you for these things, both specific and general principles by which the, to follow, to run after, to pursue. I just thank you for that direction, that kindness in our lives. I thank you for promises that, that never perish, Lord, that are strong enough to hold on to in the face of, in the, in the face of a world that maligns us, slanders us, mistreats us. God, I pray for every woman in this room. I pray, Lord, that where she feels conviction in these things, that there would be repentance, including my own heart. I pray, Lord, that, that we would all strive for more holiness of life. There are lost and dying sinners around every single one of us. May we set our eyes on you and may their eyes be drawn to you as we set our eyes on you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.